Hello, everyone. We are live. Let me know how the audio is so that we could get started. Let me know if there are any connection issues. I hope everything is working fine. So the way this works is that I'm going to be answering questions. We have eight Patreon questions, and I'm going to go through the Patreon questions. And after that, if anybody is interested as a member, as a YouTube member, I'm going to post a link to our YouTube members in the community tab so you can come up live, uh, live on air and ask us questions. This is something new that we're doing, so I'm assuming that this is not gonna be something that people are familiar with yet, but eventually maybe if I talk about it enough, some people would be interested in coming up and just talk to me live on air instead of sending me their questions. So the way, so patrons get to ask their questions ahead of time and I answer them uh, and I spend enough time on them. Um, that's the, that's the uh, bonus for the patrons. Um, some, and sometimes people can't be here live with us, so they get to send their questions as a patron ahead of time. And YouTube members, the, what we have for them is that they can come and just talk to me face-to-face -face or just via audio. Anyway, so people are confirming that the audio is good. I have the patron questions lined up ready. Susanna, Music Guy, D, Secular Rarity. Hi, guys. So let's get started with the patron questions. Here's the first one. Okay, so Creation Slayer 3000 is saying, Hello, in the Bible, when homosexuality is mentioned, to my knowledge, in all but one instance, it is specifically talking about male-to-male -male sexual acts. I was wondering if, I was wondering, is the focus on male homosexual homosexuals similar in Islam? And if so, why the focus on gay men? Female homosexuality and bisexuality are far more common. So why only one mention of that? Yeah, it's also the same in Islam. The focus is on male homosexuality. I do think there are some references to female homosexuality and obviously condemned as well. But I think the, the main factor, the main factor that you have to pay attention to why the male homosexuality is being focused is what uh, academics refer to as the ew factor. The ew factor is is what's scientifically referred to as right. So I don't. I just think like men are not just trying to protect depravity. Uh, you know, try to fight against depravity. But I think it's also against masculinity and their manhood being um, challenged. Or I think it's more about, it's, it's not just about avoiding certain um, immoral acts happening. I think it's also about protecting a certain identity. You know what I mean? Like... like do, I don't know if I'm... Uh, if you, why is it that men, right, find like gay boys more of a challenge than gay women? Like challenge to what? Like why is it a more of a threat? It's because like imagine as a father finding out that your son is gay relative to your daughter being gay. The reason why for a lot of men that's more of a more more disgusting and more of a taboo, much bigger taboo, 
is because the role of a man and what it means to be a man and what it means to show manhood, it's much more important, right? Women, you know, women like are, are doing their thing in their isolation or whatever, right? You For you to be powerful, for you to be alpha, for you to show strength in a society, that matters not just for you as an individual, it makes them, it's a big deal for the entire clan or the tribe or the family, right? Your entire strength and the position of the tribe that you belong to, it's being challenged if you're not manly enough, if you're not, you know, if you're not, a, if you're not as manly as you can be, like, or, or as alpha as you can get, be, right? So you're basically, it's not just you, you're taking everybody down with you, right? Um, you're bringing the fa whole family or, or the entire, on. this is how honor all of a sudden plays a bigger role. But this is also, you know, somewhat biological, right? There's a reason why people have more of a, a, discult, a disgust feel if, if you're not gay towards their sons being gay than their daughters being gay. You know, I mean? I'm not saying they would approve of that. I'm just saying there's a more of a gut reaction towards that because, you know, you do, well, I don't know if it's, bio, I don't want to, the biological aspect of it, I don't want to emphasize that, right? But I just think this has this meme of the strong male protecting the rest of the family has some, um, uh, you know, utility to it historically, right? I mean, we don't need it. We don't need it anymore. When I say it has utility, I'm not trying to excuse it. Obviously, these are dangerous, right? But that's what I think. That's what I think. That's I think it's more um, protecting manhood and protecting masculinity is much bigger, much more of an issue. It also might be a lack of um, knowledge about the fact that women do do these things. You know what I mean? Like this, I mean, women in their corners, whatever they're doing, that's just, women, you know, like people, men. Okay, so here's another factor. Who wrote these laws? Men wrote these laws. Men are more familiar with what other men do. And they're disgusted by it or threatened by it or just don't like it, you know? But what women do they're doing it in the shadows. They're doing it in whatever woman, in whatever spaces they have attributed for women separate from the eyes of men, right? So a lot of men, especially back then, they didn't even know women. They didn't even think much about women's sexuality, women or woman choice or woman, what women want. Women are just something you use. Um, you know, sometimes the way women are discussed in religious scripture, you wonder if they even assume that they have any agency. Uh, so that could also be a factor. Again, none of these are black and white. These are, there are many factors. I'm just addressing a whole bunch of them that I could think of, but I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. Let me know what you guys think. <clears throat> No, Secularity is saying, yeah, I think you are spot on, Armin. Well, thank you. All right. 
Oh, Creation Slayer 3000, again, with another question, asking, during the episodes where you review Daniel Hagaju's videos, I noticed that he said several times that the truth of Islam and philosophical truth are separate discussions. He did? I don't remember that. While talking to religious people myself, I noticed the same trend to a kind of non- overlapping magisteria argument my truth doesn't conflict with science what do you find hmm, what do you find is the best way to address this love the content stay, uh, stay based my truth doesn't conflict science um okay so it, it really depends on who you're talking to right some people so Philosophic, so for for some hardcore Muslims, right? The realm of philosophy and science are, you know, kind of the same realm. Uh, they're basically out of the realm of revelation and humans trying to come to conclusions with their own understanding, with their own tools, whether it be philosophy or science, right? So I think those are the type of Muslims you're talking about, because we do have other types of Muslims who also believe that, no, not the philosophy and science, that is not a separate realm from the realm of revelation or the realm of um, religion. In fact, our religion, Islam, is a religion that you come to if you do if you do your philosophy and science right everything points to god everything points to allah right so let me see if i think i can think of two other positions so let, let's just focus on these two positions I, i'm assuming there are other positions right you have people who believe that the, you the way you come to by god and know god and his religion is true revelation okay um, and science and philosophy do not, you do not bring science and philosophy to this realm, okay? But it doesn't mean that science and philosophy are useless. Science and philosophy might be useful for other things. So these, so often these people get accused of being anti-science or anti-philosophy. They say like, we're not anti-science or anti-philosophy. They're just saying that those you, you go do your science and philosophy for figuring out i don't know how to cure cancer or how to make a goddamn fridge right or i don't know what um i don't know what they use philosophy for but for something right but uh figure that you know use it sure why not of course that's great you know do do your science but when it comes to what is the best way of living um you know and also why should you know what religion is, you know, the fact that you have, I mean, you, I want to say why, um, why you should be worshiping God, but technically these kind of people think that you shouldn't even be questioning that. You just follow, you just follow God's revelation. There's nothing to be questioned or argued in the realm of worshiping Allah or following Muhammad. You just follow, you just do what you're told. Okay. And they're saying like, yeah, yeah but they're not dismissing science. Okay. But so that's group A and group B Muslims, and I'm pretty sure there's group C, D, and E, and F, but I'm just simplifying it right now. Group D is like, you know what? Actually, the best way to know Allah, this is not true, okay? 
the best way to know Allah and the best way to know why Islam is the best religion and why Islam makes sense is through science and philosophy. Okay. We have and the extreme version of that, okay, which not that many people believe, but I think uh, the philosophers of the golden age of uh, Arabs and Persian, which other people refer to as the golden age, age of Islam, they, they went as far as saying like, not only science and philosophy is the best way to come at, at even these fundamental truths as much as like, I don't know, um, you know what Muhammad was trying to show people, it's, it's, it's the best way. So much so that they were saying, you know, maybe revelation was for the for the average people, were were for the you know for the uh, for the commoners, for for the peasants, you know, like we philosophers and scientists, we have a better way, we have a more direct, and Sufis even say that, right? Yeah, we have a more direct way to the ultimate truth, but because you people cannot be at our level, there was a prophet that came and told you these stuff because you guys are stupid you know you guys are not at our level right so that's the extreme version of it i'm not saying there's many muslims who believe that right so so i when your questions your question is what do you find it so i'm assuming that daniel Hayraju or uh, sajid these are people who believe to different extents that you know coming God himself and following Muhammad himself, Sajid especially, you don't need reasoning for that. You don't need science for that. You need philosophy for that. You just follow. You just follow. You just understand. You just understand what, the, what is expected of you and you do it. Daniel Hagaju is a little bit more on like, well, to non-Muslims, we have to kind of get them with the science and philosophy first. Maybe later they get convinced of that, right? That this is the way. Um but I think eventually he also believes that, you know, you follow God because you follow God. Um, but then you go a little bit more to the side, to the side of uh, philosophy side and you get to somebody like Muhammad, Muhammad Hijab, right, who talks more about philosophy than he speaks about Quran. I mean, maybe recently he, he might be pushed into going in the other direction, but we'll see. Um, the question is whether the Quran is enough, right? Like, why are we trying to know God through philosophy where a lot of these people understand to be the, mainly the work of ancient pagans, right? So their view of philosophy is the influence of philosophy in the world of Islam is basically the work, uh, the influence of people like Aristotle or Socrates. And these were pagans. And why do we need that? Like we have the Quran. Isn't the, the God himself says in his book that this is a complete book. Why would we need to, uh, in anything else? Right? And I think when you say what do you think is the best way to address this is to just use it like depending what is your goal and who are you talking to? Are you, are you trying to, are you talking about like making YouTube videos? Or are you talking about talking to an individual Muslim. Because if you're talking to an individual Muslim, I think the best method is a Socratic method, right? You could just like, just what, just curiously, you know, be genuinely curious and just keep asking them about their views. And instead of you arguing against them, you know, you get them to do philosophy without them like without them realize that they're doing philosophy because you're just asking questions and now they are trying to 
with I mean, a lot of people are interested in telling you what their views are and if you ask why any answer to that question why will require them to do philosophy even if they don't call it philosophy so they basically you enter you bring in philosophy through the back door by simply asking them why they believe what they believe in even if they're allergic to it right that's that's how i that's how i think it's the best way to do it right um but all, when it comes to making content what what is the best way to do it is like is what you have to realize is that most the ma mass majority of muslims have not uh, built a very well structured just like not most not just muslims the vast majority of people haven't thought these things through to that level of detail to understand in their own mind where where they put all of these things and how they what the barriers are or what the limits are and even if they have introduced the limits they haven't the limits are not as hard as you know maybe some people that we see like daniel Hagaju, like they have thought about these things to uh, uh, to a great level of detail and they have decided where things are right but given that the vast majority of the muslims even if they have thought about these things this is it's not it's not as hard of a rule as you might think it is but just putting so they might be even if they think like i don't know this is not the realm of philosophy or science or inquiry or whatever but they will still be might be curious to watching your content right so you just put the content out there and you just hope that you reach as many people as you can or as few as people as you can and just like um no i mean even if you reach a few few amount of people maybe it's effective you know what i mean so you just do what you do based on your personality and based on what works with you um and i don't think like you need to um, tailor it exactly to be like oh this is what works best for these people just do what do what resonates with you and you know different you know different there's so many different people that are being affected by so many different things that you can't really pre-design that you know many people doing their own thing eventually some of it works some of it doesn't you know what i mean this, these are not things that you could plan secular rarity saying philosophy through the back door sounds kind of hot you guys are hope all of you all of you here everybody who watches me is a pervert and i'm proud of you guys for it Okay. Okay. Rob is asking, as I'm sure you're aware, there has been debate on whether or not the Quran was preserved. What does preserved mean in this context? Is this referring to all the pages, verses of the Quran being physically preserved in one book? It could be proven. Um, it could be proven that the Quran was not preserved. Would this cause? It, oh, if it could be proven that the Quran was not preserved, would this cause most Muslims to most Muslims to seriously question their faith in Islam? Oh my. Okay, so this is such a bit big topic. Okay. All right. So the Quran being preserved means different things to many to different people. I could first tell you 
what it was meant to me as a as a child as it was told to us in schools in iran and how that's absolutely wrong by the way right um even based on islamic standards that's wrong right and how this is this was always like a hidden secret that the scholars never claimed i don't know how it became such a big meme okay so we were told as um kids in in, in iran that one of the main miracles of the quran is how god protected it so much so that not a single dot all right not a single dot has been changed since revelation it's perfectly perfectly preserved all right uh the problem for the the main problem uh, okay so before i tell you the main problem and they also very much highlight this how big of a this is a main this is a huge miracle the fact that you know the uh, the quran hasn't changed since the revelation to muhammad but also this is important because this is in contrast to this was a major competition point to with other scripture because the claim is like unlike the quran the the jews and christians their scripture has been corrupted their scripture has changed this is one reason why you should come to, to islam because unlike other so um, jesus was a muslim moses was a muslim uh, david was a muslim and what they were teaching you was the teachings of allah but you can't reach to the teachings of allah through those religions because you don't have the pre preserved um words of allah through those religions since those books were has been corrupted like that's not the problem with jesus or moses or david or whatever that uh, there, there was nothing wrong with them but their their people didn't preserve their books so the only way uh, one reason why you should come to Islam is because the only way to access a lost, uncorrupted word is through Islam, right? Um, so there's so many problems with, the, with this claim. Is first of all, uh, when they told us that there not a single dot in the Quran has been changed, they didn't tell us that the original Quran didn't have any dots to begin with. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so um, the original, uh, like Arabic the original arabic at the at the alleged time of when muhammad uh, was it didn't have dots dots were something that were added to arabic later so and originally the claim was that the skeleton of the arabic words like the without the vowels without the a a o and without the dots given that that was later added by humans the dots and the the vowel markers or whatever they're called um that part could not have been the word of god that part could not be the original sacred revelation so the skeleton the rest of it that is the original revelation and that's why you see in some or earlier qurans they write the skeleton the, the original you know arabic part in black and they put the rest in different colors because they want to highlight which part of the quran is the revelation of god and the rest is like you just add so that you could read it more easily, right? Um, and so the claim is when they say that when they are these when these people are referring to the Quran, they're not referring to a physical book. So like you're saying, are they 
are they refer, are they talking about a physical book no the quran is a spiritual like a non-material book so every single quran that we have So this is a Quran that I have right here, right? This is a Quran. This is not the Quran. This is a reflection of the Quran, right? So these words are, you know, a reflection of a, a Quran that exists independently from time and space. It's a, it's a, it's the word of. So what has been preserved is the word of God. The uncreated word of God, right? It's kind of like, oh my God, people are going to get butt hurt over there. It's kind of like idol worshiping, right? So the idol that you're praying to, like the idol of Zeus, is not Zeus himself, okay? Uh, but there is a Zeus somewhere, and this is like, I don't know, a reflection of him, right? So there is a Quran. Um, some people refer to it as like a, a there's a copy of Quran that is in heaven and all these Qurans are just basically a copy of that so those revelations of Allah uh, uh, those revelations reflect Allah's perfect word and it just exists okay um I don't want to know if I don't know if you know this but they, they refer to it as the uncreative word of God and that's a challenge to the concept of Tawheed I don't want to or if you want to get to it here so Given that the word of God or the Quran is uncreated, that means it existed before the revelation, right? So Muhammad, the Quran was revealed to him, but the Quran existed at all time, you know, independent from time. Um, me, but that's a challenge to God's oneness because if the if Quran was not created, so you now have two uncreated entities, one being Allah and one being his word. But then there's a philosophical discussion: Is the word of God uh, an attribute of God, uh, attribute of God, or is it an entity independent from God? You, we, I don't want to get into that, right? But anyways, so now you understand: It's not like a physical book; it's just like the word of God just exists, right? Um, and what the question is: What does it mean that this is preserved? It means that it means different things, right? So some people are talking about ever since Muhammad received the word of God, that word that he received since his since the reception of it till now, nothing about it has been changed. Nothing about it has been changed. Okay. Some people, that's what some people refer to. Some people are referring to ever since Os, Os, uh, the third um, caliph, Osman, when he canonized the Quran, um, and this is like maybe non-Muslims would refer to this, right? Because Muslims, most of them believe that it wasn't changed since the time, since Muhammad himself. But some people are saying since Osman canonized the Quran, since then nothing has been changed, okay? And obviously some people say that it's not since the revelation, it's not since Osman's canonization of the Quran, it's since ever, right? It's since the Quran existed always. So... Since the beginning of time itself, the Quran hasn't been changed, right? Um, and there's a fourth one I think we should refer, we should talk to as well, is when non-Islamic scholars or even Islamic scholars. Um, okay, so let me actually tell you. Um, 
many Muslim scholars knew that this is not true, right? Because they've been studying the Quran and they knew that the Quran has been changed throughout throughout Islamic history, right? They have seen, they have access to a whole bunch of uh, different transcripts of the Quran and they know and they know it has been changed but this was kind of like an open secret that if people looked into it they could have found out but they let the meme of Quran being preserved perfectly just grow out of control to the point that it became a miracle and they just didn't it, they just didn't stop it from spreading but it became such a fundamental claim of a miracle that it is true that if Muslims, many Muslims find that, that this is not true, it could cause some serious doubt about all the other claims in Islam because this was such a fundamental claim. So again, the fourth claim by many non-Islamic scholars is that the Quran has been preserved, but when, when they say preserved, they mean something else than when Muslims say preserved, okay? Because it's true that the, it, has, it has been very impressive the way that Quran has been preserved. It is true. Relative to other scripture, it, there are changes, but the changes are very limited. And based on secular standards, um, it's very, very well preserved. But you have to understand that when, they, when these secular scholars say the Quran has been very well preserved, Many Muslims don't like hearing that because you would think that, oh, that's a, that's a point one for Islam. Oh, that's great. Oh, so that, look, the secular scholars are confirming that the Quran has been very well preserved. But very well preserved means not absolutely preserved, not perfectly preserved, just very, very well preserved. And that's a big no-no. They don't want it, you know, that's a main, I don't know if people understand how big of a hit this is to Islam because of how important of a claim it was for the Quran to be perfectly preserved, right? So the more scholars come out and study, the more scholars that study Islam come out and say that the Quran was very well preserved and non-Muslims who think like, oh, look, non-Muslims who want to defend Islam come and spread this wider and wider. This is good for people who want to attack Islam because they, they don't understand that Muslims hearing, look how, how great, how well the Quran was preserved. This is a major attack in Islam because they're introducing more Muslims to the fact that the preservation was not perfect. You have to understand that even, even if 99.9999% of the Quran was preserved since the revelation, but there was one change, like the Quran that we have on our shelves, if there was one change from the revelation, that is a major, major hit and causes major doubt to a lot of Muslims because of how fundamental the claim of perfect preservation was. Yeah, just not 100, exactly. If, it, if, it's, not, if it's not 100%, that's not good enough because it's not a, it's not a miracle anymore. I mean, it was never a miracle, but in their eyes. But it is true that it is very well preserved. Impressive, very impressively so.
these saying if it, if created outside of time and space, it really shouldn't matter to us who um, oh who are confined by time and space. <laughs> it's for over there. <laughs> it's for the upside down world. Oh wow, we're getting some, some we're getting somebody's flirting with me on Twitch. Somebody on Twitch is saying hi cutie, and then where are you from? Hey, <laughs> okay, good. This is good. Okay, guys, if you wanna if you wanna flirt with me on Twitch, follow us on Twitch. Link in this. Oh yeah, this is ACS Republic Twitch, by the way. I don't know if the link is in. Secular reality saying, damn, did Armin just make a Stranger Things world a reference? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> okay, so that was Rob's question. And we did that one. All right, here's another Rob question. Rob is asking, um, it is my understanding that Shia Islam is less restrictive than Sunni Islam when it comes to music, dancing, and art. For example, Shia Islam permits drawing pictures of people or animals, while Sunni Islam that's gener just generally considered haram. Do you know why this is? Was Ali more per uh, permissive of the of these things than Abu Bakr was? No, no. That is not the reason. All right. First of all, you have to understand that it used to be the other way around. It used to be that Sunni Islam was more open to more flexible than Shia as well. Okay. So or if, first of all, forget Abu Bakr and Ali. Okay. So the when you when it comes to Abu Bakr and Ali, that is the foundations of how Shia Islam started. It was like a political it was a family dispute. This is how I usually summarize the the evolution of the Shia Sunni divide. This is my summary of, of it. A family dispute turned into a political dispute, turned into a theological dispute. Okay. So when you're talking about Ali and Abu Bakr, this is the family slash political dispute phase. This is not the theological. This is not the part, you know, the Shia Sunni divide was defined way, way after. Abu Bakr and Ali were gone. At that point, there were no Shia. At the time of Ali and Abu Bakr, there were no Shias and Sunnis. There were like people who agreed with Ali and people who agreed with Abu Bakr or whatever, right? Um, so, and Ali, I think, was one. Okay, I don't know about this. This is, this is my Shia bias showing. I think Ali, we were told, like, Abu Bakr... Um, and Osman and Ali, they were less Islamic than Ali, okay? But this is, I don't know if this is, I don't think this is true. This is just like sh uh, Shia propaganda that I've been brainwashed with. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah. Well, okay, so where was I? All right, so the, originally, the way at the foundations, after the whole uh, four caliphs were over and stuff, like initial Islamic world, if you have to think about it, right? The people that the prototype of the proto Shias and proto Sunnis, the way they looked at the world 
is that the Sunnis were more flexible because there there be no Muhammad. So how do we think about how do we realize what is Islamic and what we what is not Islamic? I like we you know what we do? We 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 think about it. <sighs> yeah, we think about it, you know, we do ishtahad, you know, there was promise that the Muslim uh, community, the Ummah, if they come to an agreement, Muhammad promised that they will come to a proper agreement, right? So we just, I don't know, we just do ishtahad and we just like decide what's the right thing to do, okay? There's no Muhammad to tell us, so we just use the Quran and the Sunnah, and if it's not covered by the Quran and Sunnah, we just do ishtahad and we just use the Quran and Sunnah to figure out what, what this new case that hasn't the Quran and Sunnah hasn't referred has any reference to based on the precedent that the Quran and Sunnah uh, set, what conclusions that we have to come up with here. Okay. So we, we have to think, okay. We have to use our brains. Okay. That is pretty, that is, you know, that introduces flexibility. Okay. Um, the Sunni, the Shias, and the, the, the proto Shias, on the other hand, they were like, How dare you? How dare you think about you? You're relying on your brain, you're relying on human flawed logic. That's, that's not acceptable, right? Um, the proto Shias, they're like, God would not leave Muslims alone. There has to be a guide, a perfect guide, not just a guide. You know, um, you know the Sunnis, they didn't they believe Muhammad was perfect. They didn't believe Omar, Abu Bakr, Ali, or anyone else was perfect. They're just like, we're just, we're just going to do the best we can, okay? But the Shias required perfection because they would say a just God would not leave his people without a perfect guide for us to follow. Follow, follow perfectly, not like think about it and come up with our own conclusions. Okay. So you have after Muhammad, you have Ali, and then Hassan Hussein and the 12 Imams. And the 12th Imam, uh, it, w w during his hiding, he has ways to send you guys or whatever. That's another topic for another day. But you have your Imams, and they represent the perfect way to do Islam. Okay, are we? If you do, you want to know if you're Islaming properly? Well, look at the Imam at your time, or ask, or just ask him. Okay, but you follow perfectly, and you don't use your own logical reasoning. So, based on that standard, Sunnis used to be a lot less restrictive than Shias. Okay, so how did that change? How the, the way it changed is that the Sunnis decided to close the doors of Ijtihad at some point. I don't know when that happened. Um, I don't, I think, I don't remember. I read it this, I think maybe it was around the year 1000. I'm not sure. Okay. But they decided, like, okay, we did enough Ijtihad. So we did so much Ijtihad that we probably covered everything. And we need to. And people be crazy with this, with their people are like coming up with all sorts of crazy nonsense. And this is too much innovation. Okay. I think we should like just canonize everything that we have come up with and be like, okay, we have answered everything that could be questioned. Okay. Anything that like 
that people could be wondering about the right way of doing. We have covered it so well that we should not let innovation or beta anymore. And from now on, we will do close the door of Ishtar and we have an acceptable model for everybody to follow. And then you have the four schools of Islamic, four, four schools of thought in, in Sunni Islam. And I just picked, and I'm like, which one is the correct one? You know, because they were like, there was too much, like, people were like starting to, they were worried, rightfully so, about like too much divergence and sex after sex after sex. So like, we have four schools of thought, pick which, we're not going to compete with each other, okay? We're not going to say that this one is right, that one is wrong. All four of them are correct, even though they have sometimes contradictory suggestions. Uh, uh, if you pick one of them, they're, you know, you're, 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 you're going to be fine, okay? Like, as long as you abide by the uh, school of thought that e each one of them, so it's not like these four are fighting with each other. Like, you're expected as a proper Sunni if you pick one of them uh, and just abide by it, okay? So, just pick one of these and go with that. And from now on, no innovation, no ishtahad, just shut it down, okay? But the door, um, but this whole ishtahad concept remained in Shia Islam. I, I think they might have copied it from the Sunnis, okay? So in Shia Islam, uh, on the other hand, um, we had so many things. Uh, first of all, the Shias were being oppressed by the Sunni majority, okay? Uh, second of all, Shia Islam was under heavy influence of Persian culture, right? So a lot of these things that you're talking about, like drawing and art and animals and stuff like that, they come they come from influence from a per Persian culture, Persian art, Persian poetry, all of that. Okay, and also Sufism. So one way to, uh, yeah. So the Persian world also was heavily influenced by mysticism. And then you had mysticism influencing Sunni world and also influencing the Shia world. And I don't know, the, the way that it was cracked down in the Sunni world, it wasn't, it survived in a different way in the, in the Shia world. Right, so it's so much so that they didn't even call it Sufism; they called it Irfan. Anyways, that's another topic for a different day. So it was influenced by that, all that mysticism as well, which might have loosened it up a little bit. Um, what else did it? What else did it affect it that made it loosen, loosen up? The, the 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 fact that it was a rebellion. Oh, okay. Here's another thing. Okay, so the Shia world being influenced by the culture um iranian culture and you know was you know given that it was home to rebels against the authorities might have had certain freedoms uh, given to people because these what this is what rebels do okay another thing that i wanted to mention what was it this is very important yeah i forgot Hmm. Oh, yeah, never mind that. Uh, was Ali more permissive? Generally considered her own. Um, oh, this is the oh, this is the most important thing. Last one, okay. 
um, one of the most important thing that important things that happened in the history of Shia Islam is quite recent, and the recency of it might think people might because make people consider it not as important, right? Because we think we we don't realize how important, how significant of a change in the world uh, we have we are witnessing until like maybe a couple hundred years after it, right? But Khomeinism was not, or like the Vilayat al-Faqih version of Shia Islam, which happened in 1979 through the Islamic Revolution, was not just a structural change in the Shia world, right? Like when it comes to a, a structural political change in the Shia world, where the whole concept of, hey, you need to have a representative of God on earth, even in the moms, in the when the Mahdi, when the 12th Imam is God, you need to have that always in some way or form. That has been taken to, to its extreme, so much so that they introduced the Velayat Fati as a representative of God on earth one, when, the, when the Mahdi is God, right? So it's not just a structural political change. It was also a theological change, okay? So Khomeinism, unlike what you are suggesting, uh, which is common in Shia Islam, Khomeini himself was more in line kind of contradictory, both with Sufism, but also with a more strict version of Islam that is more um, that, that is more associated with um, Sunni Islam, right? So the idea of there's so many things that in Islam, under Shia Islam is permissible, under Sunni Islam is not permissible, but Khomeini agreed more with the Sunnis than the Shias, right? So that uh, restrictiveness was being reintroduced to Shia Islam through Khomeinism, but at the same time Sufism, which Sunni, the Orthodox Sunnis do not like, um, which I would say has failed. Okay, so Khomeinism, Khomeinism was anti-nationalism, anti-art, anti a lot of these things that they do in Ashura Taswa. Like a lot of people in Iran don't know how much Khomeini was against all of that. Like they're making, you know, a lot of things that Khomeini and Sunnis would agree on consider that is they consider to be superstition in Shia Islam. Like a lot of Shias that are very, 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 very religious, they would think that, you know, I don't know, the Ayatollah Khomeini would, they are on the side of Khomeini, but they don't know how much Khomeini would hate what they're doing, how much bid'ah and how much innovation and how much non-Islamic stuff Khomeini would would consider them to be doing. Something they would assume that it would come from a Wahhabi, not from a Shia Muslim, right? Oh, uh, one last thing that I want to mention is that um, Sunni Islam also became a lot more restrictive through the influence of a guy by the name of Ibn Taymiyyah, okay? So a lot of the hardcore uh, finding shirk everywhere you know, like everything, like, oh, this is shirk, that is shirk. Oh my God, you're like, you like that doll? Well, you're worshiping it, God damn it. You're a mushrik. Okay, so, okay, so like the whole, um, find, like trying to, okay, so you know how I said Shias were obsessed with following their moms, okay? So through people like Ibn Taymiyyah, Sunnis became very obsessive over doing things you know, and also Imam Ahmad before him, way before him, but mostly like the popularization of that was done through the Ibn Taymiyyah. Sunnis, a lot of Sunnis, not all, became very obsessed 
in perfectly copying um, the way Muhammad and his companions lived and how to do politics perfectly like how Medina was being ruled, okay? And Ibn Taymiyyah popularized that and also uh, accusing people of doing shirk or associating partners with God and calling people, like, evaluating whether people are Muslims or not, so much so that accusing Shias of not being Muslims. So that strict model was something that introduced with these people. And then something that you guys might be more familiar with, because this is also something more recent in history that uh, is a big deal, were the Salafis, right? Uh, and the Wahhabi movement. So a lot of you might associate Sunnism with a lot more uh, strictness and consider it to be a lot more restrictive given how big how big of a deal Salafism and Wahhabism, um, how big of a deal, how, how much of a highlight they have been receiving, right? And again, these are people who have been influenced by Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, way of looking at Islam, right? So you had, if you want to look at it in order, you had Imam Ahmad, and then you had Ibn Taymiyyah, and the most recently uh, aggressive version of that is Wahhabism or Salafism, right? And given how big of a highlight they get in Islam, we associate Sunni Islam with a lot more restrictive um, teaching. Okay, but I would assume that this is why this is what one main reason is that this is what gets coverage in the news. Um, I would think that you might have a different view of this if you were, for example, living in Iran, right? So even today somebody might have a complete opposite view of you rob if they were living in iran like as a as somebody who's being living under tyranny of a shia regime and looking at all the rules they like just just until recently until taliban came into power iran was the only country in the world where wearing the hijab is mandatory right and then you have a theocracy and then you have islam islamic law influencing everything from you know, the TV, to your workspace, to the schools. And there's a lot of things that are banned in Iran because of Shia Islam. And then you look at Sunni countries, and then you notice like Tunisia, and you notice like um, uh, Jordan, or you notice like UAE and Kuwait. Um, and you're like, these people are living semi-Western lives with a lot of liberties that we don't enjoy. These are Sunni countries. And they're like, women are just walking the streets with their hair showing. And then like, they're going, you know, they're like watching American uh, movies without like, you know, that much of a censorship. Like they're like living semi-liberal lives. And then you look at Saudi goddamn Arabia and they're like, holy crap. They're like, in Saudi Arabia, they're bringing concerts and now alcohol is being like, maybe like, what is like, so to a, to a person living in Iran, this question might be like, who cares about the fact that Shia Islam permits, I don't know, drawing pictures of animals? Like, we can't live. Like, that's like, we are, we are extremely limited under Shia Islam, and Muslims in Sunni countries are living semi-liberal lives, so they might have a completely different view of this from their perspective, okay? So it really depends on how you look at all of this. Um, 
but yeah, that, that would be their view. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm seeing a new question in the live chat. Oh, thank you, Susanna, already highlighted that. Thank you, thank you. All right. I think I really, really did good with this question. Like, I, this question, I have given you so many different angles to look at this, and uh, I, I, I'm really impressed with myself of how many different um, elements I considered with this with this specific question <laughs> yes Susanna saying yeah yeah I really like the detailed explanation I read oh thank you <laughs> all right so here's the next question Mo is asking what do you do when Iranian communists support the Ayatollahs because they enjoy the strong position uh against the tyranny of the uh, americans well okay it's not just the communists there's also some okay so it depends on which communists you're talking about okay so i think you're talking about western communists so unlike western communists iranian communists right now very much hate the ayatollah aggressively so okay however the communists um communists have a habit of uh supporting tyrants who oppose western countries because they're anti-imperialist and i think that's the answer right communists are supporting ayatollahs many communists not all of them because ayatollahs are against the united states and that's based in communist books no matter who's doing it again not all the communists okay I think that's the short answer is right there. If you're anti the big evil that is the United States, the greatest force for imperialism in the world in their eyes, then given that that is the most evil, biggest evil that we all have to deal with, we could ignore all the other things that we don't like about you. So I think that's the way they look at it. That, you know, anti-US, that's good enough. That's what... Again, I, 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 there are some communists that are, hate that about other communists. Like this is like a, a communist infighting. Like I've seen so many communists who are like, why are you supporting the Ayatollahs? These people are horrible. This is what, not, the, you know, if you look at it through the Iranian eyes, these people be the bourgeoisie, right? Like we can't just support, just because when bourgeoisies fight each other, we can't support one of them against the other one. Like we are, we have to be for the working class people everywhere including in iran so the working class people in iran are suffering because of the ayatollahs so why are you supporting the ayatollahs you know so saying being anti-us is not good enough so again communists this is some communists against other communists right however i do want to say as as bad as aggressively the communists in iran right now are today against the ayatollahs the communists are arguably the reason why ayatollahs are in power today because before the ayatollahs turned on them they supported the ayatollahs getting into power and in fact they started using shia narratives as a way to give an islamic branding to their communism and they thought they, the, the communists and the ayatollahs united with each other 
to make the 1979 Islamic Revolution happen. And then when the Ayatollahs came to power, they turned on the communists and they started executing them in mass numbers, right? Um, I don't know why this seems to be a common uh, theme, like a cycle in Middle East. You know, I don't you know. So many times you see communists and Islamists help each other. Islamists come into power. Islamists turn on the communists. Um, I don't know why that happened so many times. What is it with communists and or far leftists and Islam that they always they start and even in some more minor forms of it, it's not just communists. Like some far leftists, they're like, we're gonna support the Muslims, and then they succeed, and the Muslims all of a sudden like. By the way, we're not we're not very fond of this and this and this. And the communists were like, wait, what? We thought you guys were cool, right? And now they're having a divorce. It just keeps happening. I don't know why this is a this seems to be like a cycle. Um yeah, authoritarian leftists particularly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just yeah, it's not just communists who like diatollahs. I think authoritarians when they are it's because it's because we're winning, boys. It's modernity. Modernity is bringing the tyrants together. Okay, this is what I think. This is what's happening. Okay, when the the areas of influence of tyranny in the past hundred years or so has been closing in. I don't know, in the past 10, 20 years, though, it seems like it's making a comeback. But over, overall, in the past 200 years, let's say, the modernity and secularism and democracy has been growing and growing and growing. And tyrants who used to be against each other maybe are finding, fr- are, are find, finding allies within each other because they, there's a bigger threat. There's a bigger threat, and that's modernity you know that's secularism that's democracy um and i think they are they need they are they're and you you can see okay so you could the force of illiberalism are finding each other and working each other against a bigger threat and that might be in the in a very aggressive way as in tyrants finding tyrants or like communists finding ayatollahs and working with each other or it could be in a more minor way as in islamists finding conservatives and then be like, hey, these liberals, um, they're coming for our families. So I don't like your Islam. You know, you don't like my Christianity, but these liberals, right? And this is basically kind of what Daniel Heinrich is doing right now. So, and again, this this unity is not just with far leftists. It's also with far right elements. So you, you you might you might notice like Islam is getting closer to far left, but it's basically getting closer. They often find allies with everybody who is not a liberal. That might be a right wing, uh, far right conservative, or might be a far left, uh, pro you know pro you know tanky. You know it might be a far left tanky. Okay. What they all share with is that they hate us, liberals. And given that liberals are dominating, they work with each other. 
this is why Daniel Hegaju keeps focusing more on um, instead of like less on promoting Islam, more on fighting liberalism and modernity and trying to unite with conservative Christians and conservative Hindus and everybody like, hey, guys, we conservatives. Um, and also, if you notice, Daniel Hegaju, not only he likes for, like right wing conservatives and Republicans and right wing Christians. He also likes, he doesn't want to talk about Islam much. He wants to show the highlights, the agreements. But then Hagaju is a perfect example because a lot of his narratives also comes from communist and leftist critique of modernity. So he's picking from all sides to build his narrative against liberals and modernity. It's very interesting. Let me see. Yeah, exactly. D is saying the enemy of my enemy. Yeah, this is kind of like that situation. Uh, Kenji in the letter is saying a lot of leftists prioritize anti-Americanism over their other values, in my opinion. Well, I mean, arguably that makes a lot of sense because Americanism, you know, they're seeing it as a symbol of liberalism. And liberalism is arguably taking over if you look at the history in the past 200 years. So it makes sense to focus, like, why would you even speak about, like, promoting communism when people are, like, you know, are so, in their minds, brainwashed by the current liberal hegemony in the world? Okay. Let's start this comment. All right, next question. Moore is saying, is Khamenei an evil genius or a sociopath? What's his psychology? Okay, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't, I, I don't know if I could tell you that. But it is possible that through power, his, I mean, it's very possible, it's probable that through all the power that he has uh, been given uh, to him his mindset about his role and who he is has changed okay because if you look at how Khomeini was somebody that Khomeini told him that he doesn't even understand what Velayat Faqih is imagine how insulting that is the person that is in charge of everything that is Velayat Faqih today in Iran was told by the founder of Velayat Faqih that he doesn't understand Velayat Faqih. Okay? That's so, that must have been such an insult. And Khamenei was a person that when he was appointed as the supreme leader in Iran, his first, the first thing that he said was that you have to cry blood for a nation that I am the leader of. That was the first thing he said, right? And then when also you have to understand that when he came to power, he was kind of appointed by Rafsanjani, who made he who became the president at that time. And at that time, their supreme leader was not supposed to have been, I think, in Rafsanjani's mind 
a very serious position anymore after Khomeini's death. Okay, so the president was the end of, of be, the main figure that was supposed to rule the country, and that's why the president Rafsanjani made himself the president. Okay, and put uh, Khomeini somebody that he thought probably that he could control in the position of the supreme leader. Okay, but the miscalculation of Rafsanjani. So I'm I'm just thinking like at that time Khomeini probably didn't see, didn't think much of himself, especially because he himself was somebody who highlighted that he doesn't have the credentials required to be a supreme leader. He even pointed out a whole bunch of other people that from a religious perspective had much higher credentials than him that would have been a much better fit for a supreme leader, right? But that was exactly why I think Rafsanjani made him the supreme leader because being aware of how low he is, Rafsanjani thought that, you know, you I could just take this away from you. You know you don't deserve this. I know you don't deserve this. So you you probably would be somebody who would be easier to control compared to somebody that thinks that this is obviously my role, right? But what happened is that the constitution of Iran gave, for some reason, gave Khamenei a whole bunch of um, roles, I think, left over by Khomeini, that Khamenei just realized, like, hey, I have a lot more power <laughs> given to me through constitution. And through the backing of the IRGC, Khamenei all of a sudden became not just a supreme religious leader, but a supreme everything leader. So the, I think the way that they wanted to structure this is that Khamenei, you're the, you be the head of religious things, and I be the head of actual things. How about that? Okay, you be like the you be the Pope of Iran, and I be the president of Iran. Okay, we have you do the the realm of Ma'naviyat and like religious and like spiritual things. And I rule the country, right? How, how about that? Okay, but but then Khamenei had access to the IRGC, and the IRGC was was, was head of the so he became the head of the armed forces. And you're like, hey, okay, you're in charge. Well, I control all the guns, and the guy who ha controls all the guns, uh, Rafsanjani soon realized that the, he controls everything. Um, because Rafsanjani had this weird idea that Iran could even move towards a model that it doesn't even have a military, a strong military. He wanted to be like, Rafsanjani was somebody who wanted to do like, thought that he could eventually have better relationships with um, other countries and bring economic development. And through that, you will have security and armed forces for some, for some weird reason. He thought that it's not that important. Okay. But how many through, um, through Khamenei's time, so through Khomeini's time, before Khamenei, um, the IRGC was supposed to be just an anti-coup force. That was something that Khomeini himself made it very clear as, a, as an element of the armed forces that is not supposed to be uh, get involved into politics. Okay, but Khamenei was like realized that this is the main lever lever that he has to pull. Um, made IRGC a lot bigger and a lot more influential and a lot more political and with hands everywhere. Um, than it originally was designed to uh, have, right? So, and the IRGC through Khamenei, um, so this was a win-win situation. So 
IRGC looked at Harmony, you're like, okay, we could guarantee you, you, you more power, okay? And you could guarantee us more influence. Like, we will we'll work with each other. You give us all this political influence and all this economic influence, and we'll, so we'll grow the size of the IRGC relative to the other armed forces, which was Artej. And you give us that, and you give us all this power of influence, and we make sure you, the supreme leader, are the supreme everything. And you're not just the supreme leader. You're like God's voice. You're like your word. The words coming out of your mouth will become Islam as they exit your mouth. That's how big of a deal you become. Okay. So they they turn him to such a high degree of um, holiness that um, he that people. So they don't religiously they can't say he's masum. So masum means like flawless, right? But he became so close to it that even recently a mullah came on TV and said that there's a one in one one in a million chance that Khamenei could make a mistake. One in one million, I think he said that, or something a big number. And he says the only reason why he even says that is because he would like to say zero. But the only reason why he says that is because religiously his hands are tied. Because the only people who can't make a mistake are the 14 Ma'asum, which is the 12 Imams and Fatima and Muhammad. Okay. Um, so with other than nobody else can you can make that claim, but nobody else. So that's why they are assigning a one to a million chance for Khamenei to make a mistake. But that's how that's the position he has. And through all of through the past four, uh, you know, through the past, I don't know, 30 years or so, Khamenei has been seeming to show that he has believe is believing all of this right like he makes statements about god giving him a major responsibility or certain other things that he says that he has it's like he had a position of oh my god i'm nothing these people are giving this power to me i don't deserve it what the fuck you know the country like you have to cry blood for a country that i'm the leader of to that slowly become like hey I might actually be God's representative on earth. Like, again, I'm not a psychologist, but based on the things that he says, it seems like he believes it. Um, again, I don't know. Maybe I, don't, I can't know what happens in someone's mind. Um, so whether or not he's a genius, it might be not a genius of one mind. It might be that man managed to get him to the position where he is because I think it was a collective effort. Um, it was a collective effort of Khamenei and the people who were in, in charge of IRGC at the time. So I don't know if he could actually be... I do know that he's not a dummy, okay? Like, for him to be able to go to a position... And he eliminated his oppositions, and potentially including Rafsanjani. So if you guys don't know, Rafsanjani died in mysterious circumstances, and it's, it, was pro like it was potentially Khamenei that removed them from power like from not just power but from life um anyways he has been successfully eliminating all his all the people that have been challenging his authority or removing him from positions of power or house arresting them or all sorts of other things okay and he has survived against all odds um so i don't know he's no dummy like he must have been doing something right for him to be this successful but again, I don't I don't want to attribute all of it to him. Uh, PK saying absolute power makes people go, go mad. 
Well, I don't know if he's, yeah, he is insane in some levels, uh, in some certain areas. Like he literally believes that he's in war with actual demons, like not symbolic demons, but actual demons, right? So he is mad in that sense. Um, but politically, he has been proven to be extremely effectively strategic. Yeah, and Susanna is saying absolute power corrupts absolutely. Exactly. So there's that. Yeah, I'm loving the questions today. Gusa uh, Lekucic on Patreon is asking, can you please give us a breakdown of the building collapse in Abadan? So for people who don't know, Abadan is a city in Iran, in the province of Khuzestan. So the question continues. There had been allegations of corruption leading to the strategy, but how that led to these deaths isn't clear. Also, what is your impression of the sustained protests that have been happening because of this and the reaction from security forces? Okay, so so the, the, there was a building that collapsed in Abadan and a whole bunch of people died. And this um, has potentially been, um, I don't know, a tipping point for a lot of people. Um, and there's so many different elements to this that brings everything together. I don't know how to even start talking about this, okay? So the building collapsing um, is one example of many things that in Iran is going wrong because like if you follow the story closely you can see it's such a perfect uh, summary of the corruption that is happening in Iran in so many different ways one because there were so many reports warning about this building and people promising that this building was going to collapse and you know and the, the reports were ignored um, bec um, and the building people were in the building people were in the cafeteria people were you know at restaurants or in the mall in the restaurant uh, or in the building and you know doing their thing there were offices and again there were a whole bunch of people who died there um and the reason why was their reports ignored well because people were making money right and people you know there are certain people the, the people in charge of making this building they had the, the main guy especially responsible for making this building the developer or the ceo of a company and he he had connections to the highest to higher ups like he was a person that it was very well connected and a report showing this building is going to collapse didn't stop him from making the building and making his profits off of the building right and to a lot of people in iran this building it, it's a tragedy the people who died but also the way that the reports were ignored for the sake of this one man making his profits it's an indication of how things work in Iran, right? So when that, when people, even before this building collapsed in Khuzestan, there has been a lot of protests and also in other places in Iran, right? But this, at the middle of all these protests, this building collapsing and this got, and the reasons behind it being highlighted has made a lot of people make this collapse of this building a highlight of their protest because it's such a perfect in, indication of many things wrong with everything in Iran, right? I think that's the, that's the main reason. And the guy, by the way, who's responsible for this, 
have said to been in the building while the building collapsed. So the guy that people are, the guy that is responsible for building this building is said to be dead, but people are not believing it. There's so many conspiracies um, from, I don't know what to believe right now, right? There's like, they have camera footage that he's somewhere else. And the odds of him being in the building at that time, they saying it's very low. And they think the people are, a lot of people are assuming that he's not dead. They're saying that he's dead because they're trying to, after the building collapse, they're just trying to hide him, right? And actually, whether he's dead or not, the fact that so many people are just refusing to believe the official narrative that the, the man is dead is just such an indication of the mistrust between the people and anybody who has any position of authority, right? So even if he's actually dead, the fact that people just don't believe what the authorities tell them just shows such a divide between the people and whoever's in charge. Like, it's just that, you know, the, the, the revolution, was Iranian revolution was supposed to be a, bring up a, a whole bunch of people that tell you how things are ought to be and people just follow you as a manager to follow, right? But not only that didn't happen, the divide is so big, like it's bigger than most countries. Like, I don't know, in other countries, like, oh, these politicians are lying, but maybe that one is good. Okay, this, not, this what they're telling us here is true. But like in Iran, it has been, the situation is like, some people, like you might even, some people say like, if, if, it's, if, it, if the, sh the sun is shining and they like, we can see the sun and the authorities tells us that it's daytime, we will believe that it's night, even if we could see the sun with our own eyes. Like that's how, that's how big the divide has become between the people and the authorities. You know, again, not all. They're, they also have their supporters. And yes, Susanna saying in the election, yes, this was such a big story. Music guy saying, sounds like South Korea in the eighties. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm saying in the nineties where corruption uh, caused a lot of buildings to collapse. Uh, so safety standard, um, because oh, because of safety standards being yeeted for money, yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, yeah, and also, D is pointing out, which is important, guys, the protest like everything is being attributed to Khamenei to the highest positions in the country, even a collapse of the building, all the way to Khamenei, like. Because one thing you have to, so Khamenei has this game that he plays with the Iranian people, the supreme leader, is that he acts like he has authority when he would, um, over everything, when he makes a command, like when he made a command for the vaccines not to enter Iran, if they're made by United States or UK, and that caused a whole bunch of deaths, or when he demanded that you do this, or when he demanded that people stop um, when there was some corruption and people were trying to follow uh, the corruption case and Khamenei demanded for it to be stopped. Like he just comes in and inserts himself in things that he shouldn't be able to insert himself. You know, and he, he just comes in and just things stops and things happen just because he wills it or he commands it, right? But then, so he shows that he has authority everywhere. Everything that happens in Iran, if he disapproves of it, it should stop. That's how he sees it, right? And that's how it works. But then when things go wrong, he comes and says, like, oh, these authorities did something wrong. Um, they didn't listen to me or 
I, I can't do anything about it. These people doing their own thing. You know, he, he basically, in every time something goes wrong, he makes it seem like he has no influence and there are other authorities and he only has his own role. And, you know, the presidency and the, the ministers, they, they're doing his thing and he's doing like he's doing his own thing separately and they're working independently from him. And people think like this is communist trick. He takes he 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 takes credit for having so much authority, and when things go right, they bless him. It's, he's kind of like God. When things go well, people thank God. When things go bad, they're like it wasn't God, right? So, I mean, so that's how Khamenei basically plays this game, um, as if bad things have nothing to do with him. Um, and he he and sometimes he comes and. Uh, holds people responsible as if he's the hero who's saving the day, right? Like, oh, we, we need to look into this. Why did this happen? And people are like, it was you! It was you, Mofo! It was you! We know it was you! You know, you just, you, you like, <laughs> like, you're in charge of everything. And th this becomes um, a much more difficult for him to act like this because he is on record earlier in the revolution. We have audio of him, multiple audio of him, saying that the people are in charge. If people are not, if people are poor and people are unhappy, the main responsibility is not the enemies of Islam, are not the enemies of Iran. It's the people in power, are the are the, the people who are in the highest power. They're responsible. I'm like, well, guess what? <laughs> You're in power right now, so you are saying that you should be the one who's responsible, right? We have so many different ideas of him earlier that he says this. So you can't just say like this, like oh, who's like you like when things go wrong, like who did this? Like we have the people who are responsible, and now people in the street when they're protesting the collapse of this building or everything else, their chants indicate that they specifically hold him responsible because they say um, D to him, and I don't want to say it because YouTube might think I'm saying YouTube is very sensitive if you like wish, like you know that upon an individual so i'm not going to say it but they're just saying they're wishing him something bad the chance like like d to harmony okay so not that d the other d oh my God. well also that actually no never mind also that d but they say that as well but anyways never mind we're getting off track anyways let's go to the next question. So, another question by Gusela Kuchik. Oh, yeah, actually, music guy is saying his hand, he has handful of people to throw under the bus as well. Yes, he has, he does. Yes, exactly. Do you have a, you always have, a, they always have a scapegoat. Somebody needs to pay the price. Not that the, <laughs> music guy. All right, guys, next question. Next question. Pitch, uh, is asking, will you please do more streams where you discuss the latest drama and funny happenings on Iranian social media? I miss those. They were a lot of fun. Okay, guys, let me know in the comment section. Yeah, I should do more of those. Okay, but also let me know in the comment after the stream is over if you want to see those back. I miss those too. All right, so I'm going to do, so that was the last Patreon question. I'm going to do the live chat question, but just in case anybody wants to come up, I'm going to post the link for anybody to come up only to members on the community tab. So if you're a YouTube member, 
you should be able to see now on the community tab a link for you to be able to come up but i'm not suspecting anybody would because we're like this is a smaller community here on secular jihadists and we're like only introducing this as a option but just in case anybody wants to come up only members are there's a link that makes you be able to come up here and ask your questions live but only you you're going to be able to see it only if you're a youtube member but anyways let me just answer the um youtube live chat questions d is saying i read that after what molly oh has accused french uh, troops of massacres they have embraced russian help in its fight with islamist group is this a front against nato um yeah i mean i heard that as well but i also heard that the a lot of people there themselves don't like this there's a whole bunch of radio stations and over there also that is doing russian propaganda right and they're they're denying uh, doing so they're saying like no i mean so for example there's a lot of uh, R russia's influence in africa is a lot more intense than french ones right so they're very the proxies that Russia uses in France, they are much less concerned. As, okay, I'm not endorsing the history of France in, uh, in Africa. Okay, I know they had, there has been a very dark, dark, dark history. But based on today, based on the, the way they act today, um, their standards are a lot, lot higher than how Russians are behaving in Africa right now. Okay? And russians in africa the way they are operating it's in the interest of other people who are also not that worried about human rights issues right so and also you know they might support certain media to act on their behalf and there's not much oversight over to see what radio station or what tv station is getting support from where um, so you just have to go by the words that they are like working independently, but the narratives is so pro Russia that it's hard to believe that. Right. Um, so what's, what's the question? Mali has accused French troops of massacres. They have embraced Russian. Yeah. But Russian troops, um, I don't know which massacre are you, are you referring to? Because are, are you talking about early, earlier, um, like the history of, French involvement in uh, it, over there because that has been very very bad. Are you talking or are you talking about something more recent? Okay, because the Russian proxies are a lot worse, and you know the French media, French media like France Twenty Four and um, it, over there, it's it's a lot more fair. It's a lot more balanced, and I think the Russian ones do not cover. The Oh, okay. Here's another thing that I think a lot of people. Uh, so, okay. So, but when you talk about when you talk about those uh, the African countries where France and Russia are uh, are competing with each other, right? So you have to consider the people and the people in charge. Okay, the people. It is within their best interest to f rely more on France than Russia. Okay, but a lot of people over there are also brainwashed to back tyrants or dictators or people who don't care about. Um, 
human rights records or people who have tyrannical ambitions, okay? Because what they don't like about France influence over there is that France does cover a whole bunch of negative things that happens over there and also a lot of things that a lot of negative things that they might be responsible for, right? So you you might look at like France um being more critical of their activities and we might think like that's well that's a good thing but they see it as foreign media middling where they shouldn't be middling and also only highlighting the negative they're not highlighting anything any good news that is happening around that region they're only highlighting the bad stuff okay but then they look at russian media and russian media knowing that they need the support of people in charge they're also highlighting a whole bunch of things that are wholesome that is happening over there, right? So not knowing the motivation behind the people behind uh, b behind the people who are doing this because they're trying to exert soft power in the region, right? At the face of it, that looks a lot better, right? Like, oh, these French people who always were here and meddling in things that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be meddling in, they're always telling us how horrible, this is how the world sees Africa. They only see the negative. They, only, they always report on bad stuff that is happening here. But we also have good stuff that is happening here. And look at the only people who are recognizing that, you know, are, are the Russian, the Russian, the Russian media. So why shouldn't we welcome them more here? You know? and all, but, but also the tyrants are like, the people who are not the tyrants, the people who are in charge and have uh, are want to be less um, concerned with human rights or corruption. Mm, they're like, you know, the Russian. If we get our backing, if we get our support from forces backed by Russia, it's going to be a lot easier for us to do what we want to do. So that that's might be another reason why they consider that a better alternative. Um. Do you think it seems like the, this anti-imperialist narrative is spreading uh, to Russians' benefit? Yeah, I mean, Russia was always like, um, you know, Putin was always in, interested in that. Like, this goes as far as back as Putin being concerned about Western powers being involved in Libya, and then all of us, they're being so frustrated with that to doing uh, something as crazy as supporting. Assad, you know what I mean? Even though it doesn't seem like it had much of an interest. So I think the way Putin is looking at the world is not just like Russia versus NATO. Um, I think what the way Putin is looking at the world is the forces of liberalism versus all things wholesome or conservative as they, as they see it. You know what I mean? So for, for Putin, this is a global battle against darkness. Um, this is why he wanted, and what they, this darkness, they call it, uh, you know, uh, some people call it imperialism, some, but some people call it like, you know, a liberal world order, right? And he think, I think he wants to fight it everywhere because he thinks that the whole world is being lost. And he thinks like Russia is the main force that is standing up to it. There's a liberal, there's an unnatural liberal order that is taking over the world. And Russia is the main force that is standing up to it. That, you know, if you think about it that way, that's the only way you could um, explain like, you know, 
Russia making, you know, standing up for Assad because it's just like it's standing up to these powers for the sake of standing up to these powers so they don't control everything, everywhere. Beyond, it's not just about Russia; it's about saving the world. That's why, by the way, Putin says, um, "What's what? What?" Um, he had a line. What was his line? He said that, "What good is the world if there's no Russia? Like, what's the point of having a world if the, if Russia is not a power in, within that world?" Which is a very dangerous way to think about it, because technically, if it's not worth it, then you could like and nuke the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because Russia is having actual. Yeah, it's very interesting that we're thinking about these Western countries with imperialism um, as imperialists. And the forces that are standing up to it are doing actual imperialism. Like Russia is having imperial expansion goals, but some people see it as standing up to imperialism. But they're not doing imperialism. You're doing imperialism. But I don't think Putin himself sees that as... I, I don't think Putin himself sees... Like this is how other people look at it. I don't think Putin himself sees it as standing up, into, up to imperialism. I think Putin himself doesn't have an issue with imperialism. He would see... He was he he would think a perfect world would be a world where United States is still a major power, but but there's a, another major power that is competing with it, and they're both doing imperialism together, right? I think you know I I, I think it, I think he thinks things are out of balance when there's one force stand, and, but there's another force to to compete with it or to stand up next to it, and that he thinks the fact that there's only one major power. Um, is putting things out of balance, and that's why things are becoming so unnatural uh, to the point where families are even being uh, threatened and stuff. Like, I don't think, I don't think, like, based on Putin's philosophy, I think he wouldn't even want Russia to be the only superpower. I think he thinks that if you have only one superpower, that's how things become this unnatural, right? He maybe he doesn't even think like liberalism. Um, wouldn't be that much of an issue if you had like a conservative force in the world that was, you know, competing with it. Um, yeah, I think that might be his philosophy, but I don't know. Okay, Kenji saying, do you all have any uh, pride plans this year? I don't know. I'll check with my bus. I'll check with my bus, which is Susanna. Um, and that's not because she's LGBT, okay? That helps, but because it's only because she's she's the boss, she's the CEO, okay? But we don't do, uh, we don't do like, oh, you're LGBT, so you could get to the side. No, 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 no. Okay, I'm kidding. But no, she's she's a C. <laughs> Susanna is laughing in the live chat. Yeah, yeah. So we'll I'll check with her. Yep, maybe. We should bring the uh, gay uh, gay Kaba back. Um, I heard Varsh recently said the United States is heading towards a genocide of LGBT people. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know if that's what he actually said, but I don't think so. Nope, no, no. I don't. I don't think that's likely at all. I'm. I'm assuming he's being misrepresented here because that sounds like an insane thing to say. Did he actually say this? Because I don't... How? Wait, what's the indication? Where's the proof? 
I've seen okay, I've seen him saying like there's there's something is gonna happen, there's going to be a major like massacring of people. I don't know if it was specifically LGBT people, and his evidence for that seems to be like it has happened before. Um, and people when it happened before, people didn't see it coming. But obviously, that's not a good reason for why it's going to happen this time. You need better reason for Prove, you know, pro proving that it's very likely that it's going to happen again more than, hey, it happened before. Have you guys seen any other line of reasoning other than it happened before? Yeah. No, I'm assuming not. Oh, yeah, Susanna is saying, I remember him talking about mass violence against trans people or something like that. Yeah, I don't think genocide. I don't think he said genocide. I think he was like mass violence or something like that. But again, I don't think that's going to happen, especially in a country like the United States. Um, there might be more violence, but like not to the point where there's like, like actual like a war or civil war in the streets. But yeah, I must. Yeah, I, I, it's the United States, so I, you could assume there's going to be violence, okay? And there might be even more violence, but nothing as close to anything that could be resembling i'm pretty sure if there's an uptick in violence they're going that that's going to be enough for somebody for people who make claims like this to assume that this proves that what they're saying is true again i don't know if we're he's being misrepresented here okay i just think like maybe i'm missing the reason and maybe maybe he's right and i'm wrong okay but so far all the arguments i've seen it has not been convincing for anything like this happening Um, other than this take, though, Vash has had some really good takes on so many other things. This take, uh, I don't agree with, though. PK saying, "How does Iran economically survive with a heavy with with such heavy U.S. sanctions?" Um, it it doesn't. I mean, okay. What do you mean by survive, though? Because it's going to be. If the JCPOA doesn't go through, things might get really, really ugly in Iran. So, I mean, survive. Um, I mean, I mean, it's going to like. What do you mean survive? So, is I I don't know what your definition of survive is, but I could tell you that with this U.S. sanctions and you know staying in place, and no hope for, if the JCPOA doesn't go through. I, people are going to really, really suffer. So that is, that's all I can say. I don't know what you mean by survive. Um, okay, here, PK is clarifying. Even like Iran is still functioning, right? I mean, I mean, Somalia, like, again, define functioning, okay? Because like Afghanistan is like functioning by some definitions of the word function. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, see, people will go through life. There will be jobs. People will be working. The the, the place, you know, your fridge, fr more fridges are going to be empty. More people are not going to be able to pay for their hospital bills. More people are going to lose their jobs. More people are going to be homeless. More people, but 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 things will happen. Like it's not like it would be the end of the country. Like. 
there will still be an Iran. There will still be people living there and working, and there will be government jobs and other jobs, and some people will still have some money. I, I don't know. Again, I don't really know what functioning means. Like, yeah, kind of. It will continue. It it will continue. Life will become more miserable, but it will continue. You know, it will not like it wouldn't be the end of Iran. I think. Uh, yeah, and also music guys are pointing out that the rich will get by fine. Exactly. The rich, there will be a lot of very powerful people, very influential people. I, I mean, without this, with the sanctions continuing, there might be some people that would be even better off in Iran uh, with the sanctions than without the sanctions, especially people within the IRGC, for example. So, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, PK saying, like I expected, massive chaos and protests, but, but it's... Yes, so... I think you could expect um, much more protests, but and the protests will make things uh, difficult for the people in power. And even, I mean, guys, even if the whole thing breaks apart, like the, what it, what is going to break apart? Like it will still, people will still wake up and go to work, and people there will still be traffic, there will still be school. Um, I mean, it, it you know. Even if there's a revolution, which I don't think there will be, there will be a lot more protests, but not to the point where the regime would fall. I mean, everything is possible. There could always be a black swan effect that makes things, turns things in a direction that we can't predict right now. But even if that gets to that point where the whole regime falls, um, you know, the country will still move forward. I mean, a lot more miserably. Um, with the current sanctions, but it will still things still still there will still be an Iran. Like I don't know if that's if that makes any sense. And uh, music guys think it will only fall apart if the military breaks apart. Okay, but what would fall apart? Like the regime will fall apart, right? There will still be Iran. <laughs> there will still be the Iranian people. There will still people wake up and go to work and people kids will go to school and all of that. Secularized saying there will still be traffic? Question mark, question mark. Are you kidding me? Why can't we get rid of this horror? <laughs> yeah, there might be even more traffic. Okay, Higgs Boson is saying, what's the status? Yeah, I think, so PK, I don't want to dismiss your question. So I think we should, it's not that black and white. So I think we should be like um, talking about the spectrum, like how things will change. Like, like instead of thinking like, whether things will get to the point where the fabric of the society just breaks apart and everything falls apart, I think it will just be a lot more miserable, a lot more poverty, a lot more misery, a lot more poverty, um, and a lot more uh, breakups of institutions and a lot higher corruption and a lot more. But yeah, a lot of uh, very rich, powerful people getting richer and more powerful. Right, so that all of that. All right, Higgs Boson is saying, what's the status of Arab minority in Iran? I heard they were protesting and were crushed by the regime. Oh, my God. That's a, that's a two-hour discussion. Okay, uh, let me see how I could give you a summary. All right, so the Arabs in Iran um, are very much oppressed by the regime. Okay, very, very much oppressed by the regime. However... They're also oppressed by many of the Iranian people, not just the regime. Okay. 
that has improved slightly in the past couple of years. People are becoming more aware of the evils of of racism, include and including anti-Arab racism. So things are getting better, but it's still heavily present. So much so that some people even argue that there are no Arab Iranians, and these are just Iranians who happen to be speaking Arabic. Um, and they're not real Arabs because they are so anti-Arabic that they refuse to believe that they could be such a thing as Iranian Arabs. And they're like, they're, you're fooled to thinking that you're an Arab. You're not an Arab, you're an Iranian. So that's how disgusting the, some of the views are. And they want to like raise awareness to these Arab-speaking Iranians. Like if you notice some, some Iranians are like, they don't say Arab Iranians. They say Arab-speaking Iranians because that's how... You know, they don't, they don't want to even admit that such a thing exists, Arab Iranian. So, yeah, that's something that we are fighting, by the way. This is something that we are heavily involved in fighting, this, this level of racism on the Atheist Republic uh, Persian YouTube channel. So this is one of some of our major activities on our Persian channel is uh, not to fight religion, but these types of attitudes towards Arabs, towards Turkish people, towards Kurdish people, and towards all other minorities in Iran. Yes, they're very marginalized in Iran, true. Anyways, I'm going to do just one more question, and then we'll leave. Susanna is saying, tell us about what the Iranian economists told you. Oh, yeah, we had a show in Persian with a whole bunch of Iranian economists. It was very interesting. I don't know if I could summarize um, everything that was said, but it was very, very interesting. We went through so many different discussions about the current state of Iran's economy, how we got here, and where we're heading. Um, but just so, because I have to go, I just give you the main conclusion is that things, that there's, there doesn't seem to be much hope, okay? It, unfortunately, that was the major takeaway, that things are bad and they might get a lot worse. And and there doesn't seem to be a silver lining to it at all. But again, things there, there might be a black swan effect that changes things dramatically. But that was the assessment of the economists that we talked to. Anyway, sorry to end on such a dark note. Um, we are like, by the way, on a if you if you know anybody who speaks Iranian, uh, speaks Persian. Uh, introduce them to our Persian channel, Atheist Republic Persian channel. It's called Jomhuriya Bichodayan. I am somewhat convinced that short-term things are not going to get uh, much better in Iran, and the investment needs to be made in raising awareness for a longer-term uh, solution just to um, increase the level of awareness people have about um, you know, um, logical fallacies and I'm also working on these um, Persian shows, um, shorter Persian shows, introducing people to political philosophy just to equip them with the uh, tools they need to be able to, uh, you know, ask for their rights. But also we're breaking a lot of taboos. We're fighting racism. We're questioning things that even atheist Iranians uh, find sacred and something that you shouldn't be questioned and breaking a whole bunch of like desensitizing questioning things and normalizing dissent in all sorts of ways in the Persian channel. So um, if you know anybody who speaks Farsi, please introduce them to the Persian channel. And also please like this video just so that 
and this channel starts growing. And also consider becoming a YouTube member. Uh, it's right next to the subscribe button. You could become a YouTube member. And so just today, nobody uh, decided to take advantage of the feature. So I'm just going to delete that right now because I need to go. But I'm hoping at some point we get, this channel is kind of small, but I'm hoping that we get to enough members so that some people will come and talk to me live on air with their questions as a YouTube member. So again, for people who don't know, YouTube members get to uh, come live on air and ask their questions um, with audio and video or just audio. So yeah, just uh, consider taking advantage of that feature. It's joining as a YouTube member. The button is right next to the subscribe button. All right, guys. Uh, thank you all, and see you guys on the next stream. Bye.